In this episode of the Encourage Inspire podcast, I'm joined by indie creative Keith Rollins, professionally known as Reverend Doctor. Uh, this is a cool episode. You know, Keith and I start to talk about how he started playing music. Uh, he has been playing in bands for a while, but he knew he ultimately wanted to do a solo project and he knew he had something to say. So he knew that kind of just being himself on stage uh, wouldn't be the best representation of him. So he had to figure out a way to represent himself. And that was really creating the brand Reverend Doctor, which he feels like gave him freedom in having a persona, having the, he liked the idea of declaring authority and the ability to encourage people. You know, Keith shares that he played college basketball but then he obviously um, also realized that he would not, he didn't know he would be a professional musician until about 10 years into him playing. Uh, we talk a lot, we talk a little bit about, you know, college athletes and that whole experience about, you know, how they don't really have a lot of money when they're, you know, um, playing college ball and the whole premise behind. Um, the likeness and image when it comes to how that works. Keith shares that, you know, even though he has his own cards about social media, he's thankful that we have social platforms that people, his name along with his sisters, so that they could sleep sleep better. Uh, she, he shares that, you know, his mom definitely had a very, very beautiful voice. Um, you know, we also talk about the skill that it takes to do proper networking um, and that a lot of people really have to master that and it, as well because it's so needed in the work that we do in the entertainment industry. Uh, Keith shares that his brand, The Reverend Doctor, really evokes a sound from 60s and 70s civil rights movement and that Motown and soul music was something he'd always been listening to at his core uh, he says he considers himself to be a songwriter at heart. You know, with people like uh, Leon Bridges and Prince are his contemporaries when it comes to his pop and soul appeal, especially with him playing the guitar. He shares that even though, you know, he's about positivity in his act, what his lyrics really are about is creating a path to hope and effective change, and that's through the children of the next generation. Uh, we talk about racism and race relations, how that has impacted some of the smaller communities in America. You know, uh, we talk about, you know, a story about how uh, I saw a story on social media about a, a white a white young boy that was um, adopted by an all black family, and how that is really going to affect him and his and his experiences growing up. Uh, with his white peers and kind of some of that language that often gets used you know the way they talk unfortunately with hateful speech um, you know Keith talks about that you know when, where he's from in, in, in St. Paul Minnesota or Minneapolis I'm sorry Minneapolis Minnesota how the poverty line is so much different when it comes to white people or the white experience versus the black experience. And the fact that George Floyd was killed five to 10 minutes from where he actually had his house over there at that point and when he was living in Minnesota. Uh, we end the episode 
really talking about some of the awards that he's won uh, with the Mid-Atlantic Song Contest for his song called Dance Warrior and the song called Better Together. He shares that he really applied to the songwriting contest because he just wanted some feedback from industry pros, but was pleasantly surprised. Keith feels that when it comes to the larger songwriting contest, the entries don't mirror people who have really lived through those culture experiences. Uh, Keith also shares that he's a frequent blogger as well, guys. Hope you guys enjoy this episode. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Encourage Inspire podcast. It's episode number 34. And I've got a new friend with me today, man, the Reverend Doctor in the building. Uh, how you doing, man? Hey, man, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Darrell. Hey, man, it's a pleasure, man. Uh, I just, you know, we had a chance to chop it up right before we started recording. <laughs> And man, we probably uh, should have recorded some of that. Yeah, like we have, a, have a different like business podcast, like it encourage, but like you yeah, know, the business side of it. Definitely, we, we definitely will have to do that. You know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, man, I'm so glad for you to be here, man. Like, like you absolutely, definitely. Um, you know, I was connected to you through B squared, and they Represent. sent me uh, said you're somebody that they wanted me to chop it up with, you know, my podcast is called obviously the encourage inspire podcast. And we usually cover mm-hmm. one of three topics. Uh, usually um, it could be disability awareness. Could I have a disability? Sure. Music business topics or people's stories that encourage and inspire me, you know, and mm-hmm. lately a lot of the interviews I've done were people who kind of had were established, you know, acts and kind of hear their stories, but I'm loving the fact that through B squared, I'm having a chance to interview some indies, you know, who are who who are still have an amazing story and and what it is they like what the, what it is they love to do and so it's, it's nice to have this block on my podcast as well. So I'm excited, absolutely, for you to be here, man. So, oh, man. so, so excited yeah, man. to be here. So, so yeah. So talk to me, man, about the Reverend Doctor. You said the Reverend to preach, Doctor to heal. Hey, right. So what inspired, what inspired that name? Oh man. I honestly, I literally don't know where it came from. Um, I had been playing it. I grew up in Iowa. Um, and I took a year off between high school and college. I had a friend reach out to me. I hadn't, I I owned a guitar since I was 16, but I had, I like played it a little bit in church uh, or school. I went to a uh, Christian high school and we play, I play it in chapel. And then when I was 19, one of my friends who had acquaintance, he had a band uh, previously, he reached out to me. And so ever since then I had been playing in cover bands and original bands. And I never had really like a solo project. I was always playing and collaborating with people. And so I had gotten to a place where I was just like, I know what that looks like, whether it's cover bands or original bands, but I knew that I, I had finally had like, I didn't finally, I think it was that (laughs) the urge to perform as me was so present that 
I finally knew I had something I wanted to say. And so when I thought about like Keith Rollins myself on stage, I was like, I definitely know that I have something to say, but it feels strange to have Keith Rollins say it. And so I think I started thinking about like, how do I want to present myself to people? Um, and I, I was listening to this actually, it was a, an interview with Lady Gaga, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we were talking about the, the juxt- juxtaposition between Stephanie and Lady Gaga. Right. And she just talked about like being able to have a persona right. of Gaga, you know, uh, Beyonce's got Sasha Fierce. Mm-hmm. Um, Prince is his own like uh, extra person, his extra persona, but he's also Prince Rogers Nelson, you know, because he, he loved kicking it in Minneapolis with his people. Right. This that's the freedom that having a persona has because you're able to be extraordinary. You're able to be a rock star. You're able to be a pop star. You're able to elevate out of just the regular day-to-day humanity And so I I was just really attracted to that. That sounded really freeing to me because while I know if I played on stage as Keith Rollins, I think that if I, if I did that, I, I would still be happy with myself, but the idea of having a persona allows me to kind of divorce um, or, or downplay, not so much divorce, but like minimize things that aren't the point about me as a person and emphasize the things that I want people to take away as an audience. And so I, I don't, I honestly don't know where the name came from. I think I just liked the sound of it. <laughs> Reverend doctor, this idea of being ministered to, you know, not in a way where it's like, it has a faith or a religion to it, right? but you know, being uh, declaring some kind of authority around uh, the ability to, encourage others, you know, was really my purpose in that. And so like Reverend doctor popped into my head and I was like, Oh, that's kind of, that's kind of cool. You know, because you, you've got Dr. Dog, you've got, you know, Reverend Horton. Uh, and, and so you've got these acts that already have these, those kinds of names, but you know, like the pairing of the two of them, I really liked that. And, and also it, it really stated my mission as an individual, like right there on the front, Reverend to preach doctor to heal. So that's where this idea of the persona started coming from. And then, then I was like, you know what, who is Reverend doctor? And that was a long, it was a long time before I even performed as Reverend doctor before I finally figured out like who they were to be able to bring them to life on stage. So that that's kind of where the name came from just out of nowhere, but it was, a way to declare my mission as a performer right on front. And it allows me to, you know, cause Keith Rollins is, he's a dork. He's a nerd, which is fine. (laughs) I love that about me. I do. I truly do. But the thing is that when I'm on stage, the thing that I want people to take away the most is that encouragement. I want them to feel at peace at ease, which I can definitely do as an individual as Keith, but Reverend doctor allows me the space, the mental space, to be able to do that with confidence, to be able to do that with a real purpose and plan in mind, a real deliberate action, if you will. Right. So, yeah. Right. Well, I love that, man. I love that. Yeah. So, thanks. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're from Iowa. Uh, yeah. Yes. Let me ask, are you a baseball fan? Uh, like, I, know I, I grew my, up playing. Iowa love Cubs. Cause you know, I only ask that because in Iowa, they don't have a baseball team, but most people from Iowa are Cub fans. Right. 
It's true, but they actually, so Iowa has uh, a minor league team. It is the Iowa Cubs. Cubs, right, 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 right. Yeah, it's the Iowa Cubs. And I loved actually going to watch Iowa Cubs games. Uh, People, like baseball is still, in my opinion, the best sport to go watch live. Look, let me tell you something. And then you, I don't know if you can see back behind me, but. I got the Cubbies poster, absolutely. so, So, so like, how are you? How are you born in Brooklyn, New York, raised in Orlando, Florida, and you're a Chicago Cubs fan? Oh my God! That's like everyone how, in your life personally must just despise you. Yeah, it's like how you. I said, well, it's really simple because you know in Orlando, where I grew up, right? So originally born in New York, but only lived there until I was seven. Then I moved moved to Florida in 1993, and so when I started loving baseball in the late the late nineties down here, you only had, um, you had WGN and you had TBS, mm-hmm. right? So yep. you really only had three choices for baseball teams. You had right. the Cubs, the White Sox, and the Braves, so right? Only three options. So at the time, Sammy Sosa was playing for the Cubs. And he was my favorite player, still is yeah. after all time. And absolutely, I, and whoever he was playing for would have probably been my favorite team. It sure. just happened to be the Cubs, which he'd also played for the White Sox before the Cubs. So yeah, he, he did. Play yeah, for, he played for both the, both teams. But mm-hmm. you know, that's how I became a Cubs fan. He was classy. Yeah. So you know, uh, yeah. So hopefully, you know, hopefully, I don't think he'll ever get into the Hall of Fame, but 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 uh, he, hopefully, he gets embraced for Chicago because I mean, he really. I did. think that he did something really important for baseball at that yeah. particular moment in time. Yeah. You know, honestly, even at this moment, like confident brown people in sports like the kind of visibility that they bring to it like it was so important i mean i wasn't at that point in my life i was obsessed with basketball i actually got a scholarship yeah oh you got a scholarship for basketball Uh, yeah but like i said i took a year off between high school and college because my buddy was like also i just didn't know what i wanted to study um, and so I didn't want to like start playing for a team and like having like my school slipping because I wasn't paying attention. And so um, I just started playing with a band and I was like, you know, I got that scholarship waiting for me, but I like the thing is playing college ball. It's more than a full-time job. Yeah. Like, where, where like you, your whole life. Where, where'd you get recruited to? Uh, I was going to go to Wheaton in Illinois, okay. uh, which technically like you're not allowed to get a scholarship for private school, but I like, yeah, that's gotcha. what it was. And so <laughs> I was like, man, I I do want to do this. Um, but because I loved basketball, I really did. Yeah. yeah. But it, like this brand new thing had come to my life. Like I didn't grow up playing music. I grew up singing in church. Yeah. But I was like, oh, my God, playing with other people like gives me this feeling unlike I've had before in my life. Right. And so I just knew that if I was going to go to school, like I. I couldn't play ball because I, I was like, I, I just want to see where this goes. I didn't know I was going to be a full-time musician. That wasn't my ambition for, you know, years, if not a decade into playing. But at that point I was just like, this yeah, is magical. You know, <laughs> this is life changing. Yeah. You know I mean? It, it's yeah, like you said, that's college sports. And, and thankfully now they have the, the, the name and likeness rule, which thank God it's about time to be. Because I've always said these players should have been getting compensated for years. Right. Because they make such the an important so decision. much money. They make the universities 
And these coaches get paid so much money off the back millions of, of dollars the, a year of the backs of these these student athletes who will never in their life make nearly as much. If you look at a guy like Nick, they Sh- break their bodies. Yeah, they John they Tyler ruin Tyler, their lives. Technically, as as coaches, these guys are sta- they guys work for the state. They they're state employees, right? <laughs> you know, technically, te- yes. Technically. Which is why you can see their salaries. Yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> and and and. Guys like Nick Saban who are making seven eight million dollars a year, you know. Right. Most of the most a lot. I mean, yeah. Well, a lot of his guys go pro. Yeah, mm-hmm. but some of the guys won't go pro. You know what I mean? Right. So, so it's good at least while they're in college, especially going to those, those college towns that are huge, Alabama. You know what I mean? Yep. Where you can be where where, where you, once you're associated with the school, you know, to get those local endorsements, you know, can really and set up the right to really completely different family. Because what about the families who don't have money to send back to their kids every month to right. pay for their, you know, because again, like you said, it's a full time job. So what if they want to go out? They can't work. These athletes can't work. They can't do those things. So, so what about- most college athletes live in poverty. Yeah. Yeah. Like if they weren't provided meals yeah. and housing, would not be able to afford to live. I was listening to the gentleman who was a part of the Supreme Court case that played at UCLA. Oh, and uh, he was telling Ed O'Bannon. Yeah. Yep, Ed O'Bannon. He he was mm-hmm. talking about his experience as an athlete. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it just it put a face to the kind of regular poverty. And listen, I I mean it's LA right outside my window. Thinking about living here and yeah, thinking about, about that, playing right. for UCLA. Yeah. One of the richest schools in the nation yeah. and thinking about the fact that these student athletes are in food insecurity, are right. in housing right. insecurity, right. and yet they're packing stadiums. Stadium. They're Making selling jerseys. Million, million the, dollars these coaches are and like they can't eat. Yeah, it's I just, it's that's crazy, crazy to me, it's man. Crazy, it's crazy to me because, you know, these guys – you know, deserve to because in any other, because it wouldn't work that way in any other. If somebody wants to use your likeness for somebody, like it's your song, somebody can't just take your song, put it to a commercial thing. You have to, <laughs> have to be nuts. It. They have to get permission. You know, they can't, yeah. they can't take your intellectual property and just do what they want to do with it. You know right. what I mean? So, Absolutely. Take, so why should somebody, why should, you know, the, see the NCAA got away with the whole thing. Oh, well, they're student athletes. No, these people are, they, these are, this is a job. You, you can't get away with Yeah, man. To, you know, these, oh, yeah, they're student athletes, and they had to sign a waiver to to basically say, okay, you, you have to allow us to use your likeness and image to, to promote the school. But that's crazy, because these, these, these people who have no money are watching other right. people make millions and millions of dollars. These coaches can right. sign a deal with a school, back out of the deal because another job opened up. It could go get that job, but if the but if the student wants to transfer, they have to sit out. Right for a year. That's nuts. For a year, yeah. but the coach can just leave. like it's, it's just, just a long history of not putting the students first. Yeah. You know, and that, and that's no. the weird thing about the NAA or any NCAA. NCAA. Uh, Holy crap! I was yeah. NAACP. Uh, NCAA. That's the, that's the weird thing about it is that like. Um, you know, for an organization that's all about students, they very visibly have a culture of not putting students first. Exactly. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And, and that's just, that's just weird. And so the good thing is that now we can have these conversations because like the, 
all of the complicated feelings that I have around social media, one thing I have to admit is that it's able to give uh, a minority group of people, and I'm not you talking about minorities like the way that colleges, universities, right. which is right, like right. code word for like non-white people. Right. I mean, literally like the, the people that have less power in a circumstance or situation, it's able to give a platform to their voice and say what you will about whatever that group of people is. But I personally think that it's super important to be able to hear from the people whose opinion is not popular, even if the things that they are saying are problematic in the way that they're executing it. I think that, you know, it's never bad to be able to give, because this wouldn't have happened if we, if we as parents of children, as students, as individual athletes, as women, as trans and, you know, people like, who are trying to be in athletics, but people are using their them as as a, a real thing and trying to pretend like it's about women, but instead, really, what it's about is just hating people. Mm-hmm. You know, like being able to hear both sides of everyone or all of the different uh, what do you call it uh, the the nuances to people's arguments. That's mm-hmm. so essential. Like I honestly if i'm being honest like i'm not good at social media because i'm just like oh well, it just artists, feels well, weird well, you know what it is man most artists uh, don't like it most artists don't like social media um and i guess because you know for a long time before social media you didn't have to worry about doing this stuff it wasn't about right this is why i always say there's a term that this generation of artists, I call them content creators, not recording artists. Mm. Ooh, because yeah, that's so because true. Record, because record, so we talked about Prince and we talked about you know Patti LaBelle, some of these older artists. Mm-hmm. They were recording. They were recording artists. They spent time in the studio. They made records. Clive Davis was all about the record. The record and the record's yes. still important. Don't get me wrong. The record's yeah. important and recording's important. But they didn't have Clive Davis didn't have to worry about coming up with a content strategy and what's your social <laughs> strategy and a release you know, schedule. Right. That wasn't something like corporate partnerships. Right. Yeah. The only content you had to work, the only content that would come out was the music video. That right. Was it. That's yep. the only thing you would expect to see. They would they put the music video out, then they or they put the single out, then they dropped the music video. And that was it. Right. Now you have to have content. You have to have a whole content strategy and release strategy all thought of prior to release and so so a lot yeah. of artists don't like to think that a lot of times their brains don't think like that or you know and so they it's, it's with, a huge with social media. <laughs> it's a huge change because i mean we talked about this before off camera uh yeah. but it, when you have people who you know aren't necessarily strong on the recording and, and craft the art side of it but are able to leverage these tools like social media to be able to grow their following. Like mm-hmm. that is changing the game for, for other people that are good at creating like the recordings or, or crafting the message. Like it's, it's changing the game for us. We were being compared to them, which uh, something that I'm thinking about now is like, maybe, you know, there's a, there's a line maybe it's hazy, maybe it's fuzzy, but maybe those are two different things. Um, because there are definitely, you know, I think about, uh, I don't know if you know who Derek Webb is. He created Noise Trade. He's the CEO of that yeah, organization. I heard a company, yeah, the, the Noise Trade. Remind me what they do again. Noise Trade. So he had this idea. He's an artist. He started in like 
that huge boom in the nineties of contemporary Christian music, like CCM as like a marketing term and as an industry, he started there. And like, I feel like for the most part and don't come at me, conservative Christians that are out there, but I feel like the bubble has mostly popped. It's, it's still there. It still exists. You still have, because honestly, church is an industry, like whether you want to think about that or, or not, like it's still, you know, a valid marketing term. But he's an artist that grew up in this uh, and came to being when before the bubble popped. But after the bubble popped, he still had fans that loved his content and wanted to be a part of it. And so he knew that they had something he wanted and he had something they wanted. So he came up with a platform that the whole concept of it is that you don't pay money for music. The only thing that you do is you exchange personal information, just like social media. You would tell them like a little, you don't even necessarily have to tell them your name, but you would put in your zip code and email address. And then you would get like some free music, like whether it's a song, whether it would be a whole album. Yeah. yeah. Um, So basically a way to get people into your funnel, you know, Precisely yeah. to build yeah. your email list, to be yeah. able to like actually know where, where people are in yeah. the country that's yeah. listening to your music right. so that you can email them. So you can show them other things that you're doing it up to and actually use that pipeline to generate and create revenue streams. Yeah. But he, yeah, he was this person that knew like I, as an artist, am still making valuable, valid music, but this old model of recording industry, like recording contract and touring doesn't necessarily make sense to me. And so he has like, he always talks about, if you listen to his podcast, if you read his blog, uh, like he has a hundred people that are hardcore diehard fans and are doing 90% financial reporting as an artist. And then he probably has 5,000 more that's like, you know, they'll do it and they'll do what he's up to. And I don't like, that's the actual number. Right. Yeah, I apologize for that headphone yeah, problem. Technical difficulties, guys. We're back now. <laughs> Absolutely. My my only point in mentioning him was just saying that, like, um, you know, rather than having to play along with the influencer game with the with the social media game, mm-hmm. he came up with this idea of knowing that he had something he wanted from his fans and trading that commodity for music, so that then he could you know, create that individual pipeline, that revenue stream and with a small core, deeply dedicated audience that like loved what he did. And that was really powerful, man. You know? So yeah, you're right. Artists do like, I feel like most of us are really super uncomfortable with this whole uh, content creation thing because we'd love it to be just about the music. But honestly, if you're in the entertainment industry, that's just part of it. Like you, yeah, you got to recognize a lot of the time they have to get over the, they just yeah. get over because it's just, it's just what it is. If you want to do this and eventually make a living doing it, you know, or some, you have to be okay with this. It's, a, it's like any industry you go to whatever industry you go to, there's going to be certain things that you don't really like, but just, it's just one of the things where if this is what you want to do, Part of the job it's just what it has to be done right so so you know so true yeah <laughs> so so yeah but i mean you know yeah it's it's you know these days it's it's about community man it's about because see in, in, in the old industry pre-digital it was about volume everything was mm-hmm. about 
how much can we sell to a massive amount of a massive amount of people? Because right. the record industry was controlled by record labels, and record labels had they they control they controlled every aspect of it. They controlled the distribution, yeah, exclusive they controlled the marketing, access. they controlled the touring. Everything was controlled by these record companies. They controlled so they, what albums were on the shelves, exactly. available to people to even buy. Yep. Everything. So they had a lot more. They had a they had a lot more of a stronghold on what what we saw and what we saw and heard in general, right? To so allow right. with the DIY, the internet, what that's done is level the playing field for people. Now, right. that doesn't mean that record labels. One thing the major record labels have is they still have the machine, they still have the corporate dollars that indies just will never be able to compete with. You know, that being said, I don't even think a record label is right for every single artist. I don't think a major is right for every artist because if you do some thing that's really off the wall different, because let's be real, most of these majors are designed to promote stuff from a commercial standpoint. Right. Not from something, when we say commercial, we're meaning something that's easily marketed to the masses. So if right. you're doing something that's not easily marketed, you know, not something that's not, that people won't easily consume, then they may not, it may not be a fit for you because you got to think in the old industry that A&R had to be one to lose their job. Like that A&R was like, I want to sign you and, and I wanted to lose my job to, right. and they were, and it was their job to oversee the project. It was their mm -hmm. job to oversee every aspect of the project. But the difference is when they left, if I say that that new regime comes in, you're still signed to that label. You have a whole group of people who don't know who you are, don't have a relationship with you, don't really care about you at all. You're inherited. Right. And hopefully, and the hope is that they would actually like you and want to, you know, somebody likes you, but there's no guarantee that, you know, because somebody who signed you, signed you for a reason because they believed in you. And that might have been right. the only person in the building that was willing to champion you. It's true. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. I think about uh, Macklemore has i think the song actually is called jimmy eovine mm -hmm. and uh he goes in he, he it, it's it's he actually wrote a song about like meeting with i think he's on interscope um Ooh, jimmy, yeah yeah and uh just how weird that was for him as far as like walking into this office with a person that like didn't even really care and he's like seeing other musicians that he's performed or with or alongside he's like seeing their posters on the wall and he's like i remember them telling me that like they couldn't even get the the label to release that album like and they're just like shelved indefinitely you know as as musicians but they're in an exclusive contract so they can't go they can't do anything else they can't go anywhere else right it's definitely about i feel like one of the most important things for artists now is to recognize that and we talked about this before off camera, but like to recognize that the way other people do things as artists or as creatives or in the industry is not the way that you should probably be doing things. Not to say that there aren't lessons to be learned about hearing their story or how they do what they do, mm -hmm. because it could inspire you to recognize, um, you know, places that you need to probably press into, but, like comparing yourself to others is one of the most unhealthy things you can do. And also recognizing that the only person that can truly 
understand how to do what you do the best and the right path is you as an artist or with your team. I think about, I, I heard one of my friends showed me this, like this was probably four years ago and it broke my brain. There's this artist. I want to say he's from New Zealand or Australia and his whole shtick. He's a musician. I, I consider him a musician, uh, an art, a musical artist. He is this grown ass man. It, excuse me. I don't know if you swear on the podcast. He's this grown dude. And he dresses up in a squirrel costume and he raps and he's got, this kid can flow. I cannot remember the name of the act it's since I'll have to reach out to my buddy because it's like, I, it's one of those things that like I think about every now and again, it messes me up. But like he, he's got millions of followers. He, his videos have billions of views and that's all he does. He doesn't tour. He, he doesn't even create like content that's not musical, but this dude just raps. And that's like, he wakes up in the morning and that's what he does. Like you were saying, this is something that wasn't possible previously before, you know, social media, before streaming, before things like this. And it's kind of leveled the playing field. Here's a person who's making more than a livable wage off of the revenue from being able to be streamed. But if, if he, he is finding his audience, that's the thing that cannot be denied is that when you have that many views, it would be really hard. It would be really hard as an artist to say like, well, here in New Zealand, like, I mean, people come to my show and, and they love me. And then a label's going to say, yeah, but you're a guy who dresses up in a squirrel costume. I got to be honest with you. I don't, I don't have like a business model, like any history that's going to show me that this is ever going to succeed. That's just a risk that I, they're, they're, in business, it's leveraging risk versus payoff, yeah. you know, yeah. and and that's not something that's tenable for them. It's, it would be. But at the same time, because the playing field was leveled, this was a person that with surgical precision was able to navigate and find his audience all over the globe, even in languages that don't speak whatever it is that he is speaking because he knew and, and was able to like, and probably it was probably also just that he enjoyed it. You know, like he, that was his vibe. It was like, it, it's what he got up to do in the morning. And so people will ultimately connect with that passion and recognizing that you just doing your thing, blinders on focused in your lane, like given the best you that you can give, like right. that's going to be the thing that ultimately people connect with for sure. And that's, yeah. I, I think, yeah, yeah, man. And when we're talking about this industry and what it's done for us, um, and that's what I try to do with Reverend doctor, you know, it's been a weird couple of years, but I mean, you know, it, it, encourage, inspire. I'm trying to, you know, remind people that like, they shouldn't be worried about what other people are doing in their lane. Like they, they, they do their own lane, the best that they do. No one else can really tell you how to do that. You got to figure it out for yourself. I totally agree, man. So, tradition back into your story. So, what are some of the earliest memories of music? Like, when will you remember you were introduced to music? You know, I would like to ask. I would like to ask that question. My mom singing. So, my mom. If you ask her, she's so painfully shy. Um, I remember growing up. She she wrote these songs about my sister's names and I, I have four sisters and, um, you know, we're church going family. My mom grew up. She, our names are very deliberate gifts that my parents have given to us with meaning. And so my mom for each of us made up these stories and she catered 
her melodies along the lines of what would put us to sleep. Cause she would sing our, our namesake songs to like help us sleep. And so it's really fun. It, it, it's also a really great way to like show our personalities. Like my older sister is almost like a Gregorian chant. It's like, Da, 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 da. Whereas mine's like, it's like little happy, like walk through a, through a, a park in the spring. Whereas my sister who is like, she is so fierce and powerful. It's my older sister, Shree. So she listens to this. She knows I love her. And I think that she's intimidating and awesome. Um, but she she just like has this chip on her shoulder that I find utterly delightful. And I think it's uh, allowed her a lot of success. And so that's my earliest musical memory is hearing my mom sing me and my sisters to sleep, you know? And, and I just, it didn't even occur to me at that time that these were like songs that my mom made or like, wow, my mom's a songwriter. But um, I just remember she had the most beautiful voice and that was like something that was indelible even early on. Like I would just ask her to sing my song to me, even when it was a time. And then my sister's songs, I'd be like, how does Adina's go again? And she would sing it for me. And I, and I wouldn't tell her, you know, sing for me. It would have to be, cause if she'd be like, no, my voice isn't good. I'm too lady. I don't know. I don't have like a palate yet to understand right. what it is that you're doing. I just like the sound of your voice, you know? Right. So, uh, yeah, man, that was my earliest musical memory. <laughs> that's, that's awesome, man. That, that's awesome. I love, I love to ask that question when I interview my guests, because it's always interesting to kind of know where, uh, music, they, they started, you know, loving music. I've always said that, um, you know, music is something that we can't live without. You know, it's something that it's it's needed for a balanced life. So I've always been, you know, uh, a proponent of saying that, like, you know, but I didn't grow up wanting to be in the music industry. It wasn't something that I knew I was going to do. I, it was a, I always say the music industry found me or the music space, internet space found me. I didn't find it. It wasn't something That's I always awesome. knew I wanted to do. But what I love about <laughs> being a part of this industry is that it's at the end of the day, it's about people and relationships mm-hmm. and that's what I'm really good at, you know? And so that's, that's luckily that's a strength that I feel like I have maybe even more than music <laughs> is connecting with people. Yeah, um, that's what it and is. that's why I moved to LA. Cause I'm just like, I love what I do musically, but I know that one of my strengths is being able to connect with people face to face and being yeah. out here, you know, even with the pandemic, I definitely feel, like that's helped me out a lot. I ended up being the musical director for a nonprofit that does a cold reading series called Tuesdays at nine. Um, I get to book a lot of really talented people there. It's crazy living in this town. I gotta be honest. Like I can at any moment hit up an artist that I'm like, you're out of my league. Like I, cause this is a nonprofit. Like we, we can't pay for musical performances, but we do get you in front of an audience that is voraciously creative and hungry and will, you know, love you till you die. And so it's like, it's not just like a, a concert, even in front of your fans. It's more like a concert of fans that are just like, I just think that you're wonderful. I think that you're delightful. I love that you're here. Um, yeah. So like, like connecting with them and with other artists in the area. I mean, it's been so, I have a really good relationship with the house of blues in Anaheim somehow. Okay, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm actually playing a show there tomorrow. Um, and that's like, you know, big industry thing where, I mean, if you had told me three years ago before I moved to LA that like I was going to be in the house of blues in Anaheim, 
uh, I, I would have been like, Oh, Oh, okay. You know, but when you, when you put out positivity, when you, um, love connecting with people, when you're really good about not just thinking about what they can do for you, but how, like what you can do for them. Oh like that's gosh. a, yeah, people, exactly. people feel that off you, man. Like they're yeah. like, Oh, like, I like that. Like I'll keep you around. It's, nah, I don't have to worry. You know, I don't no, have to like play this game. That's the best way to network, man. You never make it about yourself first. You always make it about how you can serve them because it'll always come back around to you. Yeah, man. Many people make that mistake when trying to build relationships and making it about them. And it's like, no, you don't want to do that. Because if somebody feels like it's about them, then why should they want to help you? Right. You know what I mean? If you make it about you, they're going to eventually ask you, right? Uh, one of my one of my uh, people that I know in the industry, his name is Kevin Shine, uh, mm-hmm. who you know, is an industry veteran, been around for a long time. He talks about this concept of the three hellos, right? So when you meet somebody for the first time, hey, how you doing? They don't really care about your life story. Right. You're not, that's not the time to <laughs> to kind of spill everything. Hey, how you doing? My name is Durrell, such and such, whatever. So that's the first time you see him. Let's say yeah. you see him again a couple hours later. Hey, man, I just saw you here, such and such, right? And another quick conversation. The third time, man, I keep seeing you around, you know? Right. What is it that you do? So it's kind of like now they're yeah. kind of interested in what you do. So right. that's kind of the way I look at it. So you make it, you know, you don't just say, and you always want to find something out about them, like, and you're networking. Oh, I like your shoes or something about that. Mm-hmm. Compliments are like, yeah, so that way everybody loves compliments. Again, because right. Especially at a conference, like, especially if you, because look, these, if this is somebody who has a bit of a name and they're well known. Mm-hmm. They're used to being, they're used to quote unquote, having people chase them around. But one right. thing they don't want to do is when they go to an industry event, you know, they want to be, they want to, as most, as best they possibly can feel like a human being, right? Not right. Like somebody that happens to be somebody that's really, really well known. But, you know, so I try to make sure when I meet somebody who of stature, I just go introduce myself. Hey, I'm Darrell. How are you? You know what right. I mean? You know, yeah. type of thing. Not talking about yourself, you know, actually yeah. being interested in them. That's really hard, I think, for a lot of people is to remove themselves out of the conversation and to remove themselves out of the equation, being able to focus on others and um, figure out what they're about and what they want, even your conversation to be about is really important. And I think, you know, for me and you, Darrell, I feel like for us, one of the exciting things is actually finding out what other people are passionate about Mm -hmm. and just hearing that. Honestly, I have so many different interests that if you speak about something I know nothing about, but in a way that lights you up, like I'm a dig that I don't, I could, we could start for me knowing absolutely nothing. No. What is that? Explain that to me. I've never heard that. What did you just say? Like, tell me about that. Okay. What should I be knowing about this? Is this something I need in my life? Like right. you got to tell me, give me, give it to me, man. You know, and cause then when you get people doing that, their drop, their guard drops, they're opening up. They're actually so busy then thinking about the thing that they're passionate about and that they're sharing with you. And that, that opens up a sense of gratitude. And honestly, when once gratitude is in there, 
Like, you know, that's, that's a relationship. That's not something that you're necessarily leveraging just yet, but you're forming a relationship with that person, which is like you just said, that's what this industry is. It's relationships. (laughs) Absolutely. That's really what it is, man. If you're, you know, you have to be, you have to be willing to understand that like being passive doesn't really get you far in this space. You know, I said you have to be so in your face with people, but right. you have to, you know, no passivity isn't really good in entertainment. It doesn't really work. <laughs> it probably works in some industries. I think of like, um, you know, anything where you're working in teams or groups, yeah. like sometimes passivity is important. Um as far as like being able to create a sense of cohesion, but definitely not in art. Um, Passivity really has no place because the thing that you're trying to do is to create something bold and upsetting. (laughs) Like, like we have enough elevator music, you know, like we, we, we got that, we got our fill. We're good. Like we don't need, we could just reuse the stuff we got before, but if you're trying to create something that shakes people to their core. Like, I mean, get in that, like go, go deep, go hard, go big or go home, man. You know, like that's, and even in talking about it, like I absolutely, again, as music coordinator, like I have ended up connecting with people like just for, uh, what do you call it? Um, preliminarily through email, mm-hmm. And I, I like can't feel, you know, them on the other end of it, which, you know, isn't fair maybe because, you know, email is just a form of communication, but communication is essential. Like you got to, I got to know that you are interested in what, in what you're doing. Because <laughs> if you're too cool for school and you can't talk about yourself, you know, which is a very Midwestern thing, by the way, I feel like people out here in LA, at least like, even the smallest act that has no business being confident at all. Like they'll tell you like, I'm fantastic, which I dig actually. I like, I, I dig that person. I'm like, cool, man. Yeah. Be about yourself. yourself, You know, again, it's a way about, look, it's people, Oh, people like saying, Oh, I don't like to talk about myself on social media. You better get over that. You have to promote, you have to talk about, because if you don't talk about the things you're doing, nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to know what you have going on. You know what I mean? Right. We're not going to be like, oh, but please tell us. us We we just really want to know. Tell us what you have going on because that creates, you know, that that creates a sense of, okay, you're interesting. You have things. Well, it's nothing. It's not bragging. It's called promotion. If you don't promote yourself, who else is going to promote you? you Not only that, but when you have people with power that can get you places, you want to have the kind of confidence about yourself that allows them to be confident in you. Right. So it's not even just like bragging or promoting. It's saying, I, I know exactly what I can do. And what I can do is pretty fantastic. You, you want this. Like, I'm just letting you know that you want this because I will do great things for you. That ball is in your court now, whether or not that you decide to go with me. You know, yeah. that's just... That's essential. Like, why would I be like, well, but I don't believe you that, uh, you know, as humble as you are, that I shouldn't pay attention to you. So I'm going to go ahead and book you anyway. That's never happened in the history of the world, like the planet, I don't think. Right. You know, 
I mean, Aretha, you know, she busts into a room, you know, you better pay me my cash. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I ain't yeah. taking no deals like I need that, have, you know, yeah. bird in the hand or two in the bush. Uh, so, I mean, you, you got to have the confidence to know what it is that you're about so that you can tell other people that they should be confident in you, too. Like there's just no like that, that just doesn't come from nowhere. So, yeah, for sure. I totally agree, man. I totally agree. So, um, so some of your influences I read to kind of, you know, help on your bio to help cultivate your sound was like Marvin sure. Gaye, Marvin Gaye, Ed Sheeran, Leon Bridges, you know, mm-hmm. talk about what made you resonate with their sound to help build your sound. A little bit. You know, that was actually more describing my sound um, oh, okay. because there's definitely uh you know, so with Reverend Doctor, I mean, I liked that the name kind of evoked that 60s, 70s vibe of the civil rights movement. I wanted to evoke that and I wanted to evoke the music and the aesthetic of that era as well with my act, whether it's, you know, visually or musically, um, those influences. So there's definitely like a soul like that's what I grew up on Motown, like my parents were kids in the 60s and 70s. And that was I was all we listened to growing up like that in church music. And so I, it wasn't until I was like 12 or 13 that I started being introduced. What I, I refer to playfully now as white people music, like, uh, you know, whether it was Metallica or Jim, Jim Blossoms or, you know, Ozzy Osbourne or, or whatever, you know, Bob Dylan, if I wasn't, when I moved to Minneapolis, like I, I honestly hadn't really listened to any of that stuff, except maybe occasionally what came on the radio um, on the local radio station when I was a kid. But I mean, I would list, I would wait up. I would be like waiting for, you know, I'd be waiting for my Prince. I'd be waiting for, you know, my, uh, <laughs> my, my Tevin Campbell's my, you know, I, I was, I was waiting up for that stuff because that's, that's right in my wheelhouse. But um, yeah, that was more an attempt to describe. So Marvin Gaye is definitely there, but the thing is that I know I'm a songwriter at heart. And so when you have uh, a, 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 like a style of music that very much comes from, a personal place. Like I'm telling stories about me, which soul really, at least from Motown. I mean, that was so manufactured. I mean, you have Stevie wonder, like, um, Sir Duke, you know, which is a really personal song. You definitely had soul artists that were songwriters themselves that were crafting something that meant something to them personally. They were telling stories about themselves, but, people aren't used to in a popular sense, thinking about that. So um, not just, I'm, I'm definitely uh, an Ed Sheeran fan, but I definitely wanted people to understand that there's a song, a personal songwriter element to my sound. So that's where Ed Sheeran comes from. Um, and then who was the last one? Earth, Wind and Fire. Is that what you, said, you said Leon Bridges. Leon Bridges. And that's once again, you know, he is the perfect unity of that thing. He is a black musician songwriter guitarist that is my contemporary that I very much vibe with, you know, across the board because he is doing that. He's writing songs from a personal perspective, um, river, you know, uh, but he's also writing, you know, that popular music like misses, you know, he's, he's, so he's got both of those things in there. When I think about my musical heritage, you know, it's actually, somewhere in not just the Motown, but really early influences on my musical songwriting are actually like 
Dave Matthews, because that was one of the first bands I was in. We were like a seven piece, like horn, violin, like drummer, uh, you know, the whole arrangement. And it was this awesome, just disparate amalgamation of all these different sounds. Prince is a huge influence on me, man. One of my earliest memories where I was just like, I can't stop listening to this song um, was when doves cry. Like I just, that song for me, I, I, I was probably like nine years old, like, with a battery powered radio, like waiting up until two or three in the morning, just to have that song, like play my song. And then I can go to sleep, <laughs> you know, play my song. Like my parents would come in switch the radio off real quick, pretend like you sleep. And when they walk out, switch it back on and be listening to Prince. Um, absolutely. That that's because Prince is this, he's this intersection between rock, between funk, between soul pop and R&B. And that's kind of where Reverend Doctor comes from. Like when people listen to just my music, it's so funny. Every person will pick out the thing that they like the most. Oh yeah. I hear the pop. Oh yeah. I hear the rock. Oh yeah. I hear the soul. Oh yeah. I, and the thing is that it's not consistent, you know, <laughs> which is great. I love that because that means that I don't sound like anybody, you know, they're, they're like everyone has a different touch. Oh, Lenny Kravitz. I hear that in you. And I'm like, uh, that's fantastic because Lenny Kravitz is so sexy and I absolutely want to be associated with this. So keep, tell me that all day long, you know? Um, but it, it's, it's different every time I do it, which is great. It, it depends on the audience. It depends on the demo. So my musical heritage is, it's pretty out there, man. You know? So yeah, I'm just, I'm blessed to be able to kind of get away with it, I guess. <laughs> Maybe I'm not, I don't know. No, no, you definitely are, man. You're doing great, you're doing, you're doing great things, man. You're doing great Thanks, things. brother. You know, like I said earlier, what I love about music is the emotion that can move and oftentimes be what gets somebody through an extremely difficult time or also what gets people through happy times. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it can be a vehicle that helps build community. You know what I mean? And that's what you're about. You know, you're about being a community. You're about love and, you know, and just being positive, you know, uh, you know, especially with your song, Land of Love, you know, things mm. like that. And so, you know, talk to me kind of about, about that, about the building community aspect and the love aspect of your music and things like that. Absolutely. Thank you so much for asking that. Um, you know, I, I feel like, um, one of the things that makes my act really powerful is that I'm not talking about positivity just for positivity's sake, just because we like feeling good and we want to ignore feeling bad. I need you to have positive associations for so that you open up your wallet to me. Like that's not what I'm about as a musician or as an artist. Um, you know, for example, um, land of love. I actually wrote, a long time ago, it was actually during the Bush administration. Uh, I think Katrina was going on, you know, um, that was a long I, time ago. That was a while ago. That was a hot second ago. Uh, you know, especially with the hurricane this year and then just like bringing all those memories back, you know, down in, uh, in your neck of the woods, man. You know, I hope you're okay out there. It seems like you're, no, you're we're fine. Go yeah, we're, we're, we're good. You know, uh, I'm in Florida. So unfortunately we didn't, we didn't, uh get really hit by that so thankfully good but, i'm but so glad definitely, definitely you know thoughts are with people in the world who are still recovering from that you know precisely and and that was affecting me a lot at that particular point in time and so in, in 2020 i i did not write any music 
Um, I was supposed to go on tour. My tour was interrupted. I was actually in Montana playing shows when I, I was actually truly afraid California was going to shut down. And so I, I cut off that tour. So all of 2020, I would just like go into the studio, which is essentially, you know, our second bedroom. And I would just produce on that song on land of love. I would just like put sounds and songs and textures. And, and it's something that I've been messing around with for, I mean, clearly like uh, close to a decade. And I, it, it was very a, a meditative experience for me musically, but lyrically it was just connecting with me because for me, I can absolutely wish the best things in the world for all of us. You know, it, the, the verses um, we've been waiting so long for our chance to help make it better. Like thinking about not just opportunities, but also like the, the bridge is where really where that thing turns for me, where the song turns for me, because I'm not just talking about, like what ifs or like, let's travel off to this fantasy land of love where we can be together. You know, if I could just dream a little bit bigger, but I, I wanted that childlike intention behind it. But I also wanted to let people know that there's a very real path to making our, our everything different. Right. And that resides in our children, okay. the way that we raise them, the way that we, treat them the way that we, you know, like everything around our children is the most important part. And that's where hope resides. Everything that we, we do as like grown people in this world should ultimately amount to that. And that's what the bridge says in our children's heart, in our children's hearts, there hides this hope that things can get better. And if we plant the seed, we can watch that seed of hope grow into a tree of possibility. And every generation now needs to be living for that next generation. And, and that's a hard pill to swallow because I feel like most everyone out there is trying to make their circumstance now the best that it can be. And oftentimes the best circumstance now is not the best circumstance for our children. Um, and I think that there's a lot of things happening in this world right now, particularly in this country around protecting our children and doing well and doing right by them. You know, if we just got out of the way of ourselves and, and looked at them as us, as our future, we could, we could do that. And so I, I do, I have this hopeful, I have optimism, but, uh, I do not have I have, I have a very active imagination. I can envision a better world, but I can at the same time see all of the evil and the ills that, that pervade it. And that's really what Reverend Doctor is about, is about addressing those things head on and saying it's hard. It's a dark world. Right. And we're in need of anything good. <laughs> Just like some small sign that things can be better. And, and the, I, I wanted to give people what, I mean, what I think it is, I think it's kids. It's our kids. I, I think that. Because everything starts with them. Because they're the future. Yeah, man. Everything starts with them. You know, here's the thing, man. I always say, you know, kids, when you talk about, like, obviously, with racism and prejudice and things like mm -hmm. that going on. But, you know, that stuff is taught because. Yeah. Because you put a bunch of kids in a room 
they don't care that kid one kid's black or kid's white. Because and I always say this to people, all you gotta do is put them in a room with a shiny red ball. Yeah. And they're gonna all kids play. play with the ball. They don't care. Yeah. It's not until they're taught these other things at home by other people who are supposed to know better than them that they believe that that stuff is really that's true. You know, so so I totally get so yeah, so kids kids when they when they're three, four, five years old, they they're inquisitive. They don't they're not they don't care that you're different. They don't care that you don't look like them or whatever. No. You know what I mean? I just remember I saw something on Vlad on, on one of these somebody posted, I think it was on the shade room or somebody posted where this this kid got adopted by his I guess his parents passed away. He got adopted by his best friend's family. He's a white kid, and all sure. his friends all black. So this is this white kid who's getting adopted with an all black family. Yeah, and it just goes to show you, like you know. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like that's so. Growing up in Iowa, I have actually I have been fortunate enough to meet a lot of really great people, and some of my people have grown up. And, and adopted children. And some of those people have adopted black children. And uh, this is something that I say to them. So this isn't weird, <laughs> but um, it is always thrilling watching them go through their own crisis as adults, as they like begin to grapple with their own racism. I truly feel that the only way to undo all of the weird hatred and prejudices in our heart is through love. And one of the only accesses that we have in, in a pure, genuine sense is like understanding it through the love of children, because I have watched people who, you know, they'll come to me. They'll be like, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, Keith. I, you know, I thought I was a good person. I still think I'm, I'm, I'm okay. But I re- I had to realize that like a lot of the things that I do are problematic because you know, my, my two boys, they're like 12 and 13 and I'm introducing them to the police in our small community. And that was my instinct. Why should I have to feel, I didn't do that to my older white kids. You know, I didn't have to do that, but I did that for them because I knew, I just, I knew, but I didn't, I'd never thought of it that way before, right. you know, um, like that's, that's what love. And they're, they're, they're having to investigate that now. That's a thing where, you know, Hopefully they're not just feeling guilt. Cause honestly, I feel like guilt is um, a really just useless emotion. Uh, I feel like uh, if you are steeped in guilt and shame, we have not yet begun to grow. We are still stagnating. The the more important thing to feel is um, hope at and, and excitement at that realization. Like, Oh my God, I just discovered this thing about myself. It's horrible. It really is, but I can fix it. I can work on it. I can get better at it. I can tell other people about it. I can help them through it. That's growth. Right. Like that. So yeah, man. Uh, so when you talk about the white kid adopted by the black family, uh, I can just, for the first thing that I thought is, man, there's going to be so many occasions where this kid's going to be in a room with white peers and someone's going to, say something that I think they call uh, dog whistles. They're going to say something where they test the waters. They're going to say something racist or sexist just to see who they're in the room with. Mm-hmm. And that white kid's just going to be like, what, what, what did you just say? And they're going to be like, I'm just kidding. And they're, they, that kid's going to be like, no, I need, I really need to understand what the heck you just said to me right now. I really need to know what just 
absolute garbage came out of your mouth. Like that. So walk me through the humor in this. You, you think that's funny? Cause why? Oh, I, okay. So this is that really messed up, like just humanity robbing thing that you think about this group of people. Yeah. No, no. Walk me through why that's funny. I really need to know. You know, like that's the, this is going to be this kid's like, he's ruined for life now. He just can't, you know, be at like white events without someone saying something weird, you know, and which I think is funny. He'll also laugh at when he talks to his black family about it. But uh, that's a real thing that like white peers of mine experience now. I was just talking to this kid. He lives in Des Moines, Iowa. Kid, uh, he's my age. We're like, you know, late thirties. And he's, I was like, do white people ever just say things to you that you're like, Oh, Oh, you think that this is like a safe space for like that kind of garbage talk. Like, I'm going to have to set you down now, son, and explain why, why you're never going to say something like this to me ever again. <laughs> I'm like, right. man, you have to say that in the workplace. He's like, we were on lunch. And I was like, shoot, woo, son, man, you, I, someone's got to learn in Iowa. Someone's got to learn that noise, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure in places like that, you know, there's certain parts of the, there's certain parts of the country, you know, who, right. You know, Talk about race, talking about, you know, interracial relationships, all sorts of things like that, mm-hmm. you know, is what people still, believe it or not, 2021, some people still don't like to see that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You know, I know there's parts, you go to these, some of these rural, rural parts of certain towns, they still use color. They still use, we're talking, you know, and it's crazy. In 2021, they still talk like that, you know? Uh, so my partner and I, she's white. We were driving down uh, I-35. We were going into Texas. We were visiting her brother and sister-in-law. We were also going to Austin city limits. And we, yeah. I think that that was the first time where she was with me, where she felt something weird. Cause oh. we, we were in Iowa. We were fine, but we were in a pretty, we were in a liberal college town in Ames. And then we moved to Minneapolis and then we went down to visit her brother and to go to Austin city limits. And I swear the moment we hit the Texas border, we stopped to get food and gas. And like, we were in an in and out in like near the near Fort Worth. There's like an in and out just outside the the city limits. And we stopped to get something to eat and they were staring at us Mm -hmm. like, yeah. I'm used to people staring. I'm six foot three and I look weird most of the time anyway. <laughs> uh, but they were staring at us and I, we got back in the car and on the road again. And I was like, do you feel that? She was like, Oh my God. I was like, what do I have something on my, and I was like, that was because we're interracial. And she was just like, you know, it was like a realization yeah. to her, you know, yeah, that that because, was a thing that. Yeah. Because the truth is, there's certain things that she's never had to think about because that she won't have to. And it's not because, you know, just because she's not a person of color. She doesn't have to think about right. it. It's just right. what it is. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's not any, it's just, there's certain things that white people don't have to think about. Right. It's invisible to them. They don't, you know, they it don't. doesn't honestly come up until someone who's different is there. Like you don't know how they're, your community right. will treat or react to a person until right. suddenly their presence is there. Right. And, and again, going back to the police, you know, it's not, not every cop is bad. There's a lot of good cops out there. Oh, yeah. You know, plenty of good cops out here are doing the right thing. You know, because ideally, the cops are supposed to mirror the communities with which they serve. The right. problem is, 
black kids don't grow up wanting to be cops. They don't grow up wanting to be police officers and things like that because at least not at the, the rate that, that white children do for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, the truth is you do have to have those conversations and tell, you know, your black sons, primarily black sons, even, you know, black daughters, but primarily black sons. Hey, just sure. do whatever it is you have to do to get home. Don't, yep. don't, oh. don't, don't, <laughs> hey, just comply. Do whatever you have to do to get home because your white friends, they know they're going to get home. They're going to, they oh, don't yeah. have to worry about that. They're going home. <laughs> There's a chance that you might not go home. A big chance. Absolutely. So, you know, you just got to, you know, you know, I, I watch a lot of, uh, one of my hobbies is I watch a lot of true crime stuff. I just, I'm mm-hmm. fascinated by that stuff. You know what I mean? Sure. But it's just interesting how so many people are incarcerated for crimes that they did not commit, things they did not do, and they're yep. serving, you know, serving uh, sentences. Life sentences. For stuff they did not do. And it's just right. like, you know, it, it's, a, it, it's, it's, it's a different world, a for different sure. World, man. So, I mean, you you know, yeah. So, so, so community is everything, you know, and, and you know, people, people are, people are, are people. And yeah, you know, are we saying the whole, the whole thing behind the Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. you know, was big. And, you know, all I always said was it wasn't so much, we obviously know all lives matter. We get that everybody's life is, is, is yeah. valuable. We were just saying at the time that Black Lives Matter too. It was, it was, right. That was my whole thing. It wasn't so much, it's, it's ideally, we know every, every single person who's living life is viable yeah. it goes without saying yeah. and i think what was happening it should was, go without saying yeah it but it doesn't go, go without saying exactly, <laughs> exactly but i think that i think that um you know we were just seeing it was just people of color that just seemed to be you know the ones that we just always saw on the news right but right. and i always say too you know there is no such thing as black on black crime because we black people kill based on proximity. Yeah. So it never, people. you know, you you're not going to, you're not going to, you know, drive across the town just to be around you know your people. That, you know, you're not yeah. doing that. You you know yeah. so so that to me that was just another term that somebody came up with to try to justify. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, to your point, yeah, I, like living here in L.A., um, I mean, I, I I toured a long time and I, I traveled for work, too. And so getting to see a lot of major city centers is fascinating. Um, but L.A. is a place that's exceedingly segregated. Um, okay. I So living in Minneapolis, Minneapolis is probably the most segregated city that I've lived in. Okay. Um, so how so but, talk, talk to me about the I guess the black community versus others. Is have you experienced that in Minneapolis? Yeah. So here's the in Minneapolis actually um, has the ugly pockmark of being the city in the nation, like the Minneapolis St. Paul area, where mm-hmm. it has the highest wealth gap between white people and black people, like as mm-hmm. far as money earned. Um, and so that means that black people are primarily living in poverty and white people are like, if not the highest earning group, like second, mm-hmm. you know? And so because of that, you have black people 
cordoned off in very specific neighborhoods, particularly in North Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. When people in Minneapolis say North, that's code for black. That's code Mm -hmm. for violent. That's code for pariah and undesirable. Mm. Now they won't, they won't say that to each other because Minnesota, because it's Midwestern, it has a very polite, passive culture around it. Mm. So they get away with like their coded language, but that's what they mean when they say North Minneapolis. Mm. Like was that guy from North Minneapolis? If they say that to another white person, even another black person, they're ta- like, they're mm. asking, are, are they black? Yeah. Um, and what that causes is in schooling, in resources, in like just the the food deserts that you encounter in that city. It's honestly living there is laughable. We lived in a neighborhood, um, Franklin in Chicago is where we lived. And I would tell, I, I worked in IT when I was there. And I also worked at, um, yeah, I worked in IT. And when I would tell peers who are primarily white, if not Mm -hmm. completely white, where I would live, they're like, oh my gosh, you live there? Like, are you scared? How, why would you buy a place there? Mm -hmm. And it's like living there, it's families. It's families, whether they were Hispanic, native, um, Somali, has a massive Somali population. We're finding out about that now. There have been a couple of reports that have come out Mm -hmm. that have just uh, really tried to spotlight the way that these communities were terrorized by both the FBI and police um, and harassed and incarcerated without cause mm-hmm. and followed and surveilled unnecessarily. So you, you very much, I mean, it, the, the experiences could not be more different of these communities uh, between white people and black people in Minneapolis, which is why that place is just such an utter tinderbox. Like that's mm-hmm. most city centers, but, more pronounced Minneapolis, because if you are white, you are almost certainly above the poverty line and a comfortable distance above that. I'm not saying that there are not poor white homeless people because in Minneapolis, St. Paul, I would still say that the majority of people that are homeless or afflicted with mental illness um, and are out, unfortunately on the streets are white people. Um, But close behind that, our native people and black people, mm. you know? And so, especially given the actual demographics of those respective populations. So that city is just, I mean, it's, it's, it's no surprise to me having lived there. I lived in the third ward. That's where I, that's where I owned my house. That's where my, my condo was the, the police precinct that burned down and where George uh, Floyd was so, killed. Oh, you, oh, you know that area. Yeah. I lit. So he, his life was taken from him probably like five minutes from my house. It's like probably mm. 10, 15 blocks for me drive mm. from where, where I lived okay. um, in Minneapolis, not even eight blocks. It's closer to eight. Mm. So, I mean, like that's my hood, man. And <laughs> like when that happened, when that went down, I definitely, I was like, man, I just, I wanted to be in Minneapolis so bad just yeah. to be around my people. And yeah. um, uh, the, the thing is, like I said, it's families that live there. The people, I mean, the FBI knows this now after investigating the people lighting the fires, doing the really like violent, like property destruction. Those were kids from the outer suburbs, like coming around, coming into town, causing trouble. Yeah. Like we know this now, like, like even at the time on the ground, when I was, uh, you know, when, when the news stations were like, Oh, 
they were basically effectively saying like black thugs are like burning down their right. neighborhoods. How right. dumb is that? Right. Um, the communication on the ground from the national guard when they instated curfews was like, our suspicion is that we have bad actors coming from out of town into town and co- like causing destruction of, of property. Right. So they were asking citizens uh, the person that I sold my house to, I'm actually friends with. Uh, so they were telling me like, yeah, this is the communication. This is what we're getting. So they even stated the curfew and everybody is abiding by the curfew that like lives here. We don't want to be out. Like that's not, we're upset, right. but like, we don't want to like tussle with the national guard. Like this right. isn't like what we're trying to do right now. So right. a lot of those circumstances and situations, it was just all, you know, I, honestly, I get there's so many things I have in common with uh, like conservative people. It's kind of like weird that we're on opposite, opposite sides of this issue. Mm-hmm. I also don't trust the major media because they'll mess it up. <laughs> they'll tell whatever story they want to that mm-hmm. gets like eyes on it and sells them ads. Yeah. I'm like, like there's, they botched like the, the George Floyd um, murder so bad. If it had not been, for that cell phone footage. If it had not been for that, nothing would have happened. Nothing would have come from it. It's Diddy still is like, you know, right. it, it's still trying to like get the truth out about the things that have been happening there. Mm-hmm. But the thing is that the people that live there that are on the ground that are live in those neighborhoods and their surrounded communities, the one positive thing is that people during this whole period we're actually like interfacing and talking to each other. So even if mass media was getting it wrong and we were all making up our own narratives about what was happening there, right. the people in that community were filled with love. The people in that community wanted their neighborhoods to be better. The people in that community didn't want to have to have a dad who was just a little bit high and just needed to be like, Hey, move on brother. Like right. ain't nobody, nobody wants anything here. Like just, you know, go home, sleep it off, right. you know, or right. do it on the sidewalk. Nobody cares in that part of the hood there's people sleeping on the sidewalk all the time, like sleeping off their high or they're drunk or something like that. Like yeah. that's so, then even the dude that like called the police and was just like, I should have just taken the $20 bill. I should have just taken his money. Like he had such regret over his actions and that, you know? And so, I mean, that's a city that um, I actually have a lot of hope around. The reason I have a lot of hope is because having lived there myself and knowing the people yeah, there. You, and you know the things that, so you can, you know what the public doesn't know. Yeah, that, that, the, that community, they care so deeply and so profoundly over the safety of their citizens. And unfortunately, like they don't have control over the mass media. They don't have control over the narrative around it. They don't have control over anything like that. But my feed, it was just like the moment that the fires started happening, it was people creating food drives. It was people mm-hmm. distributing water. It was people going in just like with medical help, with trying to find resources for families that were, you know, like displaced. It wasn't anything but an outpouring of community love. But that doesn't find itself on the news. That doesn't, it doesn't like play well. Uh, uh, Suburban white kids with nothing to do during a pandemic came into the city and burned things down. Like, ain't no national media going to say anything like that. Like, that's not what we do. You know, like Lakers fans, like, you know, tear down and like, we're like, ah, they were just happy that they, their team won, you know, whereas like, bro, we, the dude suffocate in full view of everybody mm-hmm. like that whole city of the yeah. whole planet experienced this I traumatic know, yeah, event secondhand like dude he's dying like i remember people were saying like dude he's 
to the cop like, yo, he was killing him. He's dying. They're killing him. Yeah, yeah. And and like and and that's like our fault somehow. Yeah. Like we should have just complied. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't I don't understand that. So the the yeah. thing that gives me hope is that like, and this is what my mom says. My mom uh is such a bright light in my life. Yeah. Even though we have such visibility about around all the terrible things that are happening in this world. I think that it's also true that never before in history have so many people made their voices heard in resistance to those terrible things and are doing like these almost guerrilla act, like acts of kindness for each other, like without any system in place, without any, any formal procedure, we are showing up for each other when trans rights you know when we're trying to make it uh, like women's rights but it's actually like you know trans people of color like in florida and they're trying to be like hate them with bat- those weird bathroom laws and stuff like that you know we we get to stand up for that when uh, you know um when women in texas aren't allowed to like have autonomy over their bodies we're able to stand up for that when women in afghanistan are not able to like do the thing that they do we're able to stand up for them when when all these things happen, when, when black men are being harassed by the police, when, you know, white women are being paid less, when, you know, all these different groups, when Hispanic people are given illegal hysterectomies at the border by my federal government, my money is paying for this. Never before have we had such visibility around these acts when they happen to be able to say how despicable and heinous this is. We've got literally child graves being discovered in underneath Catholic churches in Canada. And, and people just be like, oh, who, who knew? Where did right. all the children come from? Where did they come from? Where did they go? Right. Those communities were like, where did our children go? And they have been saying that for hundreds of years. And now the ugly truth is coming to light and people are like, oh, we're very, we're very sorry. That's happening now. People are still taking native children, women, like as far as a population for missing people, never before, like native people are far and away above. But the thing that gives me hope is that there's enough of people like you and me, Darrell, that are like, this is the line. You've crossed it. I'm not okay. You're going to hear my voice and I'm going to give money to the people directly because I can figure out who they are, Yeah, you know, and support and love and reach out. So that's where Reverend Doctor exists. I know the world as it is, uh, but I also want to remind people that this is not something that we can't overcome. I have an imagination big enough to believe. Not because I need to believe, but I genuinely, because I meet these people, I know these people, I collect these people <laughs> that, that are resisting the, the ugly things that we do to each other and instead are asking like, why can't we do better? We, we can do better. I know that we can do better for each other and for ourselves. And that's, that's that both that positive thing. And like, it's, it doesn't exist in a fantasy land. Like let's just sing Kumbaya. Can we just, let's put the bad things out. Like, no, man, this is, this is a hard earned joy. This is my Angelou's. I know why the caged bird sings. I know why it's suffering and heartache, but I still, I'm still given a song to sing. And that's the beautiful thing about, about, music man so hey. um i want to end the episode just talking about you know i know you said you're a award-winning singer so what's what's the awards you've won yeah so i was actually lucky enough to win two different awards the mid-atlantic song contest uh i won an award two years ago 
um, for my song Dance Warrior. And then I won an award this last year um, for Better Together. And it's just awesome. Like I, I, I applied to a whole bunch of song contests um, just because I wanted feedback. I've never really gotten feedback on my music from someone in the industry. Mm-hmm. And so even just to see like, because it, it also would like, you know, give you feedback and reviews and stuff on your music. And I, I honestly wasn't thinking that I would um, get any recognition for that. But um, the first one was uh, like recognition or something like that. Like it was recognized. And then the second one, it was like first runner up or something like that um, for, for better together. And so it's, it's been interesting applying to these songwriter things. I mostly did it not thinking that I was going to ever even place, but I did it, uh, to try to get feedback. And I suppose it's been positive, at least from those communities. I applied to a couple of others. Like I did apply to the John Lennon songwriting contest, but you know, the weird thing is that, you know, when you, when you perform soul, or some form of it when, when you, when you perform music that has very much like a slant that's in a cultural community that may not necessarily be the mainstream that is white, mm-hmm. um, that I feel like these, some of these larger songwriting contests, just, I'm really skeptical of them. Right. <laughs> that isn't to say because I didn't win an award, they're not legit, but more like, uh, I wasn't optimistic to begin with because looking at their previous winners, I didn't necessarily feel like, um, not, not that they're, they weren't really talented musicians that won, but that um, it's important to have people that represent those communities and those genres to be able to give feedback on it. You know what I mean? Right. Like it's totally valid if you are, oh my gosh, who is that producer that Bruno Mars worked with? Um, Mark Ronson. It's totally valid to have Mark Ronson. Like, you know, if the category is funk, I'm not saying that, you know, cause Mark Ronson's a very talented musician. He is white. Mm-hmm. Um, but it makes more sense to me if I, you know, have, uh, you know, um, oh my gosh, George Clinton's, you know, drummer or something like that, like weigh in on that contest instead, you know, so someone who I know that's been around in the industry and watched it change and watched funk change, you know, who, who may not be as big a name, but in my opinion has more of a cultural understanding of that particular genre. And again, it's not to say that Mark Ronson doesn't. I, I definitely think that, that that brother loves funk, but for me, you know, looking at the judges and things like that, that's important to me as far as feedback goes, but. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Man. Well, dude, this has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I agree, Darrell, man. We, we so connected many, early. Yeah. So many different <laughs> things, man. And, and things of that nature. So where can people find you? You know, how can they connect to you? All that type of stuff. Absolutely. The best thing to do right now is my Instagram. That's where I'm most active. It's at at Reverend doctor, but it's R E V D R. So the abbreviation for Reverend and doctor. So at R E V D R music. Um, That's where I'm most active. Currently I have links for all of the things that I'm doing right now. I've never been busier, honestly. Um, So I've been blessed to be in a place where, because so many energy, like you, excuse me, you can't do movies or TV shows without people in the same room. And so the weird thing about being in California is that although, sorry, can you still see me? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, although 
there's lots of people with different political opinions and affiliations here. Everyone agrees that whatever we need to do to keep working and making money is important. <laughs> and so uh, I've never been busier as far as playing shows, whether it's private event or corporate events. Um, so you can see all the like video footage and stuff like that, that I've been up to. Um, I'm going to be releasing a single here called um, woman being it's just a celebration of the women in my life that have been important to me. Uh, but yeah, my Instagram is the best place. If you're interested in my words, follow that through to my website. I blog frequently. I write articles and essays. Uh, writing is a, a thing that in 2020 I did a lot of just because rather than music coming out of me, I just wanted to encourage people like directly with my words and weigh in on things as they were happening. So yeah, those are the best places. Awesome. Thank you, Darrell. I, pre- I appreciate you letting me be here, man. Hey, man, I appreciate, I appreciate you being here, man, and, and being a guest. Like I said, we, we, we went on a few different uh, paths in this conversation. That's what I love about <laughs> podcasting. Yep. Is that, you know, whatever you want. Uh, kind of talk about whatever you want, you know, and I, it, it, we just, you know, it's a vibe. It's a great conversation, you know, and, you know, and so. And I think I think we definitely people are gonna enjoy definitely enjoy uh hearing this when it comes out. So I think so too, yeah, for sure. Uh yeah, let's uh I, I even just enjoyed our conversation off the record about yeah. uh business, man. So I mean, if there's things you want to bounce off me or sure. or whatever, um yeah. I don't have nearly the experience that you do. Um oh. but <laughs> I, I'm someone who's like a small fry trying to um, navigate the weird world of convincing people that uh, I am confident and capable of doing something that I think hasn't been done before. And well, how do we do that? Like, that's always fun to workshop and think about whether it's me or other artists. Well, man, you're, for you're, sure, man. You're, do- you're, honestly, you're doing really great things. Um, you Thank know, you. And, and it, again, you know, being a DIY indie artist, you know, it's not the easiest thing. You know, when you choose this right. career, you sign, you, you kind of sign up for, you know, def, difficult time because it's expensive. You know what I mean? And so, you know, the thing with, I say this all the time, like with in Canada, their government believes in the arts, so they provide great right. funding. And so Canadian artists have a little bit, you know, have a little bit more easier time because and the reason why they created those grants was because a lot of the Canadians were having to go outside the country and go get jobs, you know, and, and they wanted to keep those people in, inside Canada. So they we want to keep Atlantis more set. We want to keep, yeah. you know, um, Bieber, you know, you know, yeah, absolutely. We need to keep them in Canada. All, yeah, all these right. So, so that opportunities now that exist for artists who don't have the funding to be able to go out there and at least and get a get a get a demo recorded, get a, a debut EP done, get right. funding for touring, like get all these things, and, and because the government, you know, uh, my man Dio, who's a who's a rapper, and, and uh, mm-hmm. he's also he's in the Guinness Book of World Records. He's a he's a author, but a lot of he makes a lot of his living going to elementary schools and rapping to kids about life and through hip hop and things like mm-hmm. that. And you know, Dio talks about his story and the fact that he was there was a time he told me this when I interviewed on my podcast that it was him and Drake. And this was like <laughs> the grassy days. So there yeah, was a yeah. time where Drake 
and him were kind of on the same level. He used to actually mentor Drake back then. Sure. It's probably was like the mid 2000s and he talked about how, you know, Drake would come in and have this uh, lacy hard drive of songs that he wanted to get to people like Chris Brown or Trey songs and things like sure. that. And, and to see, you know, to see Drake, he's like, man, one minute Drake was here, the next minute he was like, he was gone. And, sure. and he, you know, <laughs> and because over there, there isn't much of an R&B scene in Canada. There wasn't right. you know, much of a, you know, at that time, you know, you have Keisha Shantae who used to be in one of the parks. She's Canadian, but she did pop music because they didn't really do R and B. You know what right. I mean? So mm-hmm. anybody of color, like you know, anybody of color, like it was a pop. If you listen to her stuff, it's really, a, really is a pop sound. You know, right. something like that. But I just go back to I just said that to say in in Canada they have more of a a socialist mindset, meaning you rather see. 20 people make a hundred thousand dollars for the year, they'll have four or five make five, you know, two, three million dollars for the year. Versus right. here in America, it's free enterprise. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, so so you know. Uh, I think about Korea. I mean, South Korea, that's their entire goal. Like so many of those um K-pop management groups are directly funded by the state. And it's looked at as um sort of like a cultural evangelical, like it, it's a way to spread Korean culture and promote Korean values throughout the world, like the in, in yeah. K-pop. So Psy was like a really early version of that. And then after they, I mean, they've always given money to that, but then after they saw the success of Psy, they like turned that up and they turned even more money from their state like is given directly to these management companies that produce and create these bands. Yep. And that's why you have so many K it seems like a, a flood of K-pop bands, but you have an entire nation whose budgetary uh, responsibility is to like create these groups. And like, it's just so interesting to think about how um, government money could influence art. Exactly. Yeah. When, it, and yeah. when you have the funding, when the government believes in the arts and they believe in, you know, cause again, that's the one, the one thing that 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 is that makes it difficult for indie artists is they just don't have the the real budget that it really takes to right. do this. You know what I mean? Right. Like it, it's because it's they spend so much money recording the album, right? But then it's like, okay, what's time the market to promote? You know, it's like that's a whole other thing. So a lot of times, you know, most artists are working nine to fives. You know, and yep. then having to because it's not easy to go just find an investor because ideally, ideally you would love to find an investor, but then you also got to think about you don't want to take money from anybody because right. you don't know if they understand how the music business works because right. it's not traditional business. So it's like going to take even fifty thousand dollars for somebody who doesn't necessarily understand. No, this return might not happen right away. <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. So and that's why so many record com- or not record companies. Rob recording studios disappeared Yeah, is because artists started doing the DIY thing as far as like home studios and things like that. Yeah. Um, but then they were trying to budget that money and save more of it for after it was recorded for the marketing and promotion of it, you know, and thus the di- disappearance of uh, flight time studios in Minneapolis and many others like that big, here in LA. Yeah. The big um, studios are because people want, people can't afford them, you know I mean? Yeah. You know, and they rather just sit at the crib. I mean, unless you're doing like big band stuff, like stuff where you need to have the room to, you know, right. but if you're doing tracks and you can do the production yourself and, you know, I mean, 
do that crap in your room, <laughs> or, right? You know, in a room, or you know, nobody. You know, one of my bars that I manage, she has uh, her dad. They have a little studio in the, in the house, mm-hmm. and they just track the vocals there. You know what right. I mean? You know, so you know, because you never know. You don't know where these the songs get recorded. Nobody cares. It's always a good recording. No. Nobody cares where it was tracked. At. Yeah, and people just. Does it sound good? Exactly. Is it a bop? You know, that's all I care about. So. Exactly, man. Hey, man. Well, look, it's been a pleasure, man. Darrell, likewise, brother. It's definitely been a pleasure, guys. This has been another episode of the Encourage Fire podcast. And this is your host, Darrell Peer. Until next time, I'm out of here. Peace. <laughs>